Romans 5, verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous." Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, this morning we ask that you would, as has been prayed, superintend your word. Meet with us, Father, and speak to our hearts by your Spirit, through your word, that we would be changed forever to be like your glorious Son, whom we praise, whom we exalt, who is worthy of all glory, honor, and blessing. Praise be his name, and thank you for your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Okay, we are working our way through um, a challenging section, no doubt, um, where... Paul is building thought upon thought as he is fundamentally contrasting two men, two heads of history, Adam and Christ. Adam being the head of all those who are earthborn, natural, um, those who are of the earth, and Christ being the head of a new humanity, those who are heavenborn, born again, born from above. Each one represents a group of people, and there is no third category. All of us are either in Adam or in Christ. When we come into this world, we are born in Adam. We are his descendants. And what we have seen so far is that those who are born of Adam receive the sin, the judgment, the condemnation of Adam, which ultimately is death. The reason why we are born sinners Scripture teaches is because of that first sin of Adam, which has passed to us. And so the great truth in this section is that the actions of the one can affect the many. The action of the one can affect the many. And praise God, the end of the story is not Adam and his sin. There is great hope beyond Adam because there is a second man, a last Adam, whose name is Jesus Christ. And he brings us the grace of God. 
as seen in his very righteousness, the gift of his righteousness. And that is what brings us justification, justification unto life for all his people. So we have the federal head of Adam who brings sin and condemnation and death to all who are in his body. And we have the other man, Jesus Christ, who brings justification, righteousness, and life to all who are in him by faith. This is the central doctrine, really, of the entire epistle to the Romans. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And the church lives and stands on that doctrine. Now, there's one other concept that Paul wants to bring out in verse 17 that he alluded to in verse 15. Where in verse 15 he says this, Much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man which we know is the righteousness of Christ from verse 17. And he says this, This grace of God and this gift of righteousness abounded to many. It abounded to many. And in verse 17 he makes clear what he is talking about with regard to that grace abounding. And that is the concept of life. Life. A reigning in life in fact. Adam as the source of pollution for the human race. His work polluted everybody such that all of us now are in the reign of death. But Christ reverses this curse of death and brings about a reign of life. Now, the first thing that we need to ask ourselves is this. What is this reign of death? We must understand where we start in the line of Adam in order to appreciate and glory in where the Lord brings us in Jesus Christ to the reign of life. Well, in verse 14, we saw the same phrase, death reigned. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. And we asked the question, well, what did, what did that mean? Well, it simply means that they all died. Everyone from Adam to Moses died even when the law had not yet been given. Moses hadn't come yet. There's a period of time in biblical history in which men died. And the question is, why did they die? And the scripture says, because all sinned in Adam. That's really the answer. We all sinned in Adam. And because of that, all died. Even those who did not commit a sin in the likeness of Adam, they all died. Even babies who were born who sometimes die. Why did they die? Because of the inherited original sin of Adam. But Adam is a type of him who was to come. As he is ahead of humanity, so Christ is ahead of the new humanity. And so we want to look at these comparisons and contrast them as Paul has laid out for us here. So death reigned. All died physically. But there's another element that is so important and that the scripture is replete with when it speaks of death and life, and that is spiritual death and spiritual life. What is a spiritual death that occurred and has reigned over all men since the time of Adam? 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. It's a good definition for spiritual death. It means literally to be in the evil one, to be placed or set up in the evil one under his influence, under his power and authority. 
There are many examples of this spiritual darkness, spiritual wickedness that we see in the Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2, for example, verses 1 to 3. And listen, and listen to this. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Dead, yet walking. This is a description of spiritually dead people who are physically alive. They are walking. That idea is that they, their lifestyle is, their manner of life, their pattern of life is according to what? The world. The course of this world. Pastor Stan was praying this morning and uh, in his introduction to the prayer, he talked about the idea of, of drifting on the sea. This is exactly what's in mind here with everyone under the reign of death. We are drifting. We're not anchored to the Lord Jesus Christ or to truth. By nature, we are drifting and moving with the current, which is what? The course of this world. Whichever way the people of this world move, those who are in the reign of death also move. We move not only according to the course of this, this world, but according to the prince of the power of the air that's a reference to the devil himself. And we conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So here we have the, the triad, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those who are spiritually dead, who are in the reign of death, are marked by this. They love the world. They love what the world has to offer. Vanity Fair, what it's selling, they buy. They also have the devil for their father. The works of your father you will do, Jesus said to the Pharisees. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he's a liar. There's no truth in him. In fact, he's the father of lies. And so everyone who is born in this world loves lies. They act just like the father. And they themselves are murderers. And you say, how is that? Because they have hatred in their heart toward one another. And in God's mind, if you hate in your heart, it's the same as murdering. And so we love the world, we walk according to the course and the desire of the devil as our father, and we indulge our fleshly, fleshly appetites without restraint. Whatever the flesh wants, whatever the eyes see that it desires, we indulge in without restraint. That is what it means to be spiritually dead. Or take this example in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled... <clears throat> it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. This is another picture of the reign of death. It means to be unbelieving. Unbelieving toward what? Toward the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the very image of the exact representation of God. He is God himself in the flesh. And people reject that because they're in the reign of death. Their minds are veiled. Their hearts are veiled. They cannot believe until the veil is removed by the grace of God. They are perishing 
which is a word that means lost, in the process of being destroyed. This is difficult language, but it is nonetheless true. And so there is great power in the reign of death. That is the point. Great power. This sway, this current of the ocean moves us and we have no ability to get out of its sway. It causes us to drift and the souls of men to drift without any anchor to the truth. Isn't this, brothers and sisters, really the explanation for why the world it is as it is today? Why it is that when we have a basic God-given definition of marriage, it is redefined now in our culture to be something other than what God has defined, one man and one woman permanently, forever? Or what about when the God-given gender of an individual who is male or female by birth is no longer fixed but is called fluid and is alterable and able to be changed based on how somebody feels? That tells you that death reigns. When we have a culture of death that's permeated at every level of society such that the sanctity of life is no longer esteemed, but human life is dispensable from the womb and even with the elderly and the infirmed, you know death reigns. It all started with Adam and his pollution is still with us today. But notice the contrast that Paul gives in verse 17. And thank God for these contrasts. Much more. It means to a much greater extent. Paul uses this phrase in uh, chapter 5, verse 9, in verse 10, in verse 15. And his point is to say this. If as true as this one thing is, this other thing is so much more true. Much greater, to a far greater extent. And what is this much more in verse 17? It is this, the reign of life through Jesus Christ is far greater than the reign of death through Adam. The reign of life through Jesus Christ is far greater than the reign of death through Adam. You could restate it this way, this gift of Jesus' righteousness that we are speaking of is far greater than the curse of Adam's one offense. His gift is greater than the curse of the offense. Or you could state it this way, Christ is more powerful to save than Adam is to sin. Christ is more powerful to save than Adam, excuse me, is to ruin, is to ruin. If you read verse 12 through verse 14 as we did and we stop there, we'd all be pretty hopeless. We would be hopeless. 12 to 14 in this passage is the reign of death because Adam's sin has been imputed, has been counted to all of us. But thank God there is a greater Adam who came, of whom Adam was only a type. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks of Christ as this second man, meaning he is the head over a new humanity. He is the perfect man who obeyed everywhere that Adam failed. He is also referred to as the last Adam. In other words, the final head. There is no third head of humanity, nor will there ever be. And he brings in a reign of life that is much more powerful than the reign of death. And so verses 15 through 19, you could call the reign of life or you could call the triumph of grace. The triumph of grace. We sing about that, don't we? The triumphs of his grace. Why? For this simple reason, Jesus Christ overturns, overturned and abolished death for all who trust in him. He overturned death and abolished it for all who trust in him. Let me give you an example. You think about an earthly judge 
If you come before the tribunal of an earthly judge, a court, and the judge proclaims, determines by verdict that you are not guilty, what does he do with you? He lets you go. He turns you to your own way. But when God, the judge of all, pardons, he brings you to life. And he blesses you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. He causes you to be born again. He adopts you into his family as his own son with full privileges and rights of inheritance as the firstborn. He clothes you with his own very righteousness as one would put a robe on someone else. He, not only that, but he, in, he indwells us. He changes us from within to be more like his son. That's sanctification. See, the Lord doesn't just clean us up and send us on our way and dismiss us, but he has an active interest in us. In fact, so much so that the language of Scripture is that he marries us. He takes us into covenant relationship with himself, and he loves us as the very apple of his eye. When Jesus brings you to life from death, here's the point. Nothing and nobody can ever reverse that and turn you back to a state of death. Can't happen. You see, that's why the reign of life is so much more powerful than the reign of death. Because the reign of death can be overturned by the grace of the Lord. But the reign of life can never be overturned. When you've been brought to life, you are alive and you will be alive forevermore. Praise the Lord. I think Paul underscores this truth so well in Romans 8, verses 31 to 34, where he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Isn't that wonderful? God himself justifies. If he, the judge of all, pronounces that you are not guilty and that you are actually righteous with the righteousness of Christ by faith, which he does. That verdict is never changing to guilty again. You are declared righteous and right in his sight. His abundant grace is greater than all our sin and all the consequences of our sin which ultimately lead to death. So Christ is more powerful to save than Adam is to ruin. Matthew Henry, the commentator in the 17th century, one of the Puritans, said this, quote, Surely Adam could not propagate so strong a poison, but Jesus Christ could propagate as strong an antidote and much stronger. And much stronger. In other words, Jesus' antidote not only heals us spiritually, but fortifies us such that we can never again be poisoned with sin that leads to death. Never again. So now the question is, who are the beneficiaries of this reigning in life? Who is Paul speaking of when he says, you reign in life? And Paul qualifies the beneficiaries this way. He says this, verse 17 of Romans 5, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. 
Now, I want you to focus or underline this word receive mentally. Think about this word receive. Receive sounds passive, doesn't it? When you receive something, you open your hands and you take something that someone else gives you. You receive it. But this word in the Greek, lamvano, it means to lay hold on. It means to take hold of and claim as your own. It means to grab, if you will, to attach yourself to, to apprehend. So it's not passive at all. It's actually active. Those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Let me give you an illustration of this in Mark chapter 5. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now, why did I bring up this passage in Mark chapter 5 with regard to receiving abundance of grace? Because this word touch that you see in verse 27 and 28, she came behind in the crowd and touched his garment because she said, if only I may touch his clothes. That word that's used there means to fasten oneself to, to cling to, to grab onto. It's the same idea. This woman had an urgency to get to Jesus. She had an issue of blood, we're told, for 12 years. She had spent all her resources all her resources on the physicians to get better. And she was none the better for it. And she was desperate. And she recognized the Lord that he had the power to heal her. Even if she could get to just a part of him, just touch the fringe of his garment, not embrace all of who he is, not um, ask him for healing, but just the faith to touch, to affix herself to part of Jesus. What a great picture of salvation. What a great picture of salvation. There is a painful awareness of our disease. Is there not in our salvation? We know that we have sin. And if it's not dealt with, we are going to die eternally. Many attempts to fix our sin, to deal with it in our own strength and resources. But ultimately, we find that we have none. There is a recognition that Jesus alone can heal. We just have to get to Jesus. And so there is a desperation to simply cling to him, to receive him in that sense. So this is not passive. This is active. This is the idea that Paul has in mind when he says, those who receive abundance of grace, those who 
claim that abundance of grace by grabbing onto it themselves. You see, the offer of salvation goes out indiscriminately, does it not? To all. That's called the general call. Like this, for example, in Psalm 95, verse 7, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. There's a call that goes out, and there's urgency to that call. Repent and believe the gospel, and you will live. But we must take hold of the gift and claim it as our own. Right? There's a responsibility for us to grab onto what's being offered. You go back to Romans 5. In this grace of God that abounded to many in verse 15. There it is. The grace of God is sounding forth. It's going out. It's abounding to many. There's the sovereignty of God. But here in verse 17, the recipients of this grace receive it. They actively take hold of it. There's the responsibility of man. Scripture always presents both side by side. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. The question, brothers and sisters, this morning is, have you done this? Have you taken hold, have you grasped that offer of abundant grace and the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for yourself? Not only did you do that at one time in your life, like did you walk an aisle at one point in your life, but you haven't really done anything since, but are you continuing to grasp and cling to the righteousness of Christ and the abundance of His grace for yourself. See, that's one good test to know that you're no longer under the reign of death. You're no longer under the reign of death. Why? Because you're believing. You have life through believing in Him. John 3, 36, He who believes the Son has everlasting life. He who believes not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. It remains on him. You see, the reason you know you have life is because you actively believe in the Son. You see him as your Lord and Savior, the one who took your punishment on the cross for you where you deserve to die. And you are entrusting your life to him. Conversely, you know that you're in the reign of death if you don't believe the Son. In other words, you're not persuaded that he is your Savior. That his righteousness alone is what's required for you to have standing with God. You still think that you have some righteousness of your own that you can commend before God. That's the reign of death. Let me put this even stronger because I think there are those who would say... I believe the Son. I receive his gift of righteousness. I try to obey him. But think about this. If Jesus is for you just a nice-to-have and not a must-have, if that desperation is not there, then you, brother or sister or friend, you have not seen your true condition. You've not seen that you are hemorrhaging blood like this woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. And that if that is not dealt with, if the balm of Jesus Christ is not applied to those wounds, you will bleed to death eternally. 
we must be desperate for Jesus Christ. He is a must-have for Christians. He is the essential bread of life for us to sustain life, is he not? He is the water that we need, a living water for us to continue life. Without him, we die. That must be our position. Christians believe the Son. They take hold of him and they continue taking hold of him. So this word receive is important. It's not passive, it's active. Now, I want you to note the contrast that Paul gives in verse 17. The contrast is not death reigned and now life reigns, strictly speaking, but it's this. Death reigned and now we reign. We reign. We who have received abundance of grace and the gift of Jesus' righteousness, we reign in life. And so what does it mean when Paul says we reign in life? Remember, the word reign means rule, kingly rule. It means to exercise dominion, authority, power over others. And when he says in life, it's literally in the state of life itself. We reign in the state of life. And the key, brothers and sisters, to understanding this is really the phrase he uses at the end of verse 17 when he says this, we will reign in life through the one. That preposition is the key. Through the one Jesus Christ. In other words, in union with Christ. And so, we who take hold of this offer of abundant grace and Jesus' righteousness, we are brought into union with the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The very source and fount of all life. He brings us into union with himself. And because Jesus reigns in life, we reign in life. There is no reign in life. There is no victory over sin and death and Satan apart from reigning in Jesus Christ. He is the only one through whom we have this life and victory. And so what does Jesus have to say about himself with regards to reigning in life? Revelation 1.18. This is Jesus, the glorified Christ. And he says this, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. He is the victorious one who himself reigns over death. He, Hebrews says he tasted death for all, for his elect. He was dead, but he's alive forevermore. He now reigns in life. You see, This truth is so seminal. Jesus conquered the grave. He didn't only come back to life from the dead. Lazarus was brought back to life from the dead by the power of God, wasn't he? But Lazarus died again. Jesus never died again. He lives forevermore. You could think of Lazarus' resurrection as a resuscitation, really. Jesus had the only resurrection, truly, and that's why he is the firstfruits, the forerunner, the one who leads the way such that all of us will follow suit and rise from the dead physically as he did. Jesus is the ever-living one. It's very interesting. The, The same idea that God gave when he disclosed his name to Moses, when Moses said, who shall I say, Lord, is sending me? to to confront Pharaoh and to set the people of Israel free from the bondage in Egypt. And the Lord said, I am that I am. It's the same idea. The ever-living one. 
Jesus is identifying himself with that same language. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he reigns victorious over death and sin and Satan. Listen to Acts 2.24. This is referring to Jesus, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Not possible that he should be held by it. Why is that? Because hundreds of years before David prophesied in Psalm 16.10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Was David prophesying that of himself? Or was he prophesying that of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah to come, who himself is the Holy One of God? He who is born without sin. He who took our offenses upon him and was crushed for our iniquities, bruised for our transgressions and iniquities. And because of that, he was totally vindicated by God. His work was accepted by God. His sacrifice fully accepted. And God showed the world that his sacrifice was accepted by raising him from the dead, never to die again. He is the ever-living one. He reigns. And Paul says, we reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So this reign fundamentally is a sphere of dominion, of authority, that we have been brought to where we reign in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to give you two senses in which this is true in the Scripture. First, that we reign in life now. Now. There is a reign in life now that has begun. And there is a reign that is yet to come in future glory. Firstly, we reign in life now. And I want to give you four points here to consider Number one, we've been raised from the dead spiritually. We've been raised from the dead spiritually. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want to continue reading where we left off before. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. We saw that we all were dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of the world, the devil, and our own flesh. But God, verse 4 who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Here's the superabundant grace that is coming to us. And he's raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. That's past tense. Past tense. He's raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ you say, how is that possible? I'm here on the earth. Well, Paul is going to teach, and, and Scripture teaches this, that we rule and reign with Christ because when Christ was raised from the dead, we also were raised from the dead in him. There's a mystery about that. Christ died on the cross. We were crucified with him. We're going to get to that in Romans 6. When Christ was raised, we were raised with him. So when you came to believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior alone. You were raised from the dead spiritually. In fact, that's the only reason you were able to recognize your need, that you saw your hemorrhaging blood and you saw Christ and you ran to him. You reign because you sit now in the heavenly places in Christ. In other words, you're no longer earth dwellers. Our citizenship is where? It's in heaven, where Christ is. That's why the call is to set our minds on things above, 
not on things of the earth anymore because you're not a citizen of earth anymore. You're a citizen of heaven. You're a stranger and a pilgrim on this earth. And you're looking for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God, not any man. And then I want you to notice in verse 7 that this reigning in heaven with Christ continues forever. Look at verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He has raised us to the heavens. He is keeping us in the heavens where we rule and reign from now to eternity. Amazing truth. You see, this reign of life means that the veil of unbelief that we talked about before in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that's been taken away. The veil has been removed so that we now see our need for Christ. We now embrace him by faith. We are believing because our minds are no longer veiled. We have been transferred from the reign of death into the reign of life. And now, rather than walking according to the course of this world, according to the lust and desire of our flesh and the desires of the devil, we now fight against those things, don't we? Those are our enemies, no longer our friends. And we fight against them as children of mercy, empowered by the Spirit of God. So the reign of life is a spiritual resurrection from the dead. It's now. Second point is this. The devil's power of death is gone. For those who reign in Christ, the devil's power of death has been abolished. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. This was our call to worship this morning. And let's look at verses 14 and 15. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had, or literally in the Greek, having the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. So through Christ's own death, he not only defeated death as we saw in Revelation 1.18, he was dead, he's alive, and he lives forevermore. He ever lives. But he has also taken away the one who has the power of death. He has defeated him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so how is it that the devil has this power of death? I mean, I think sometimes we think, um, unbiblically, in terms of Positive and negative. Christ, the Lord, God, he's the positive force. The devil is the evil, the negative force. Those two are equal. They cancel each other out. That is not biblical, friends. The Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign. He reigns over all. The devil is a created being. Think back to the garden in Genesis 2.17. What is death? Is death not the ordained punishment that God promised for disobedience? In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Death is God's ordained punishment for sin. It's not a force that's outside of God's control, that's equal with God in some way. No, death is God's death if you want to think about it that way. You remember 
in the conversation that God had with Satan behind the scenes with regard to Job. Job said, the only reason that he worships you, Lord, is because you, t- you protect him, you take care of him. Take away everything he has and he'll curse you. And what does the Lord say? You have access to him. You can take away everything he has, including his health, but you may not touch his life. The power of death is in the hands of the Lord, not in the devil's hand, ultimately. What am I saying? That the devil is God's devil. He is subordinate to him. He is submissive and and submitted to him in every respect. He cannot do anything apart from what the Lord gives him reign to do. And so, just as the Lord reversed his righteous verdict of condemnation to justification, as we saw last week, he changed the, the verdict. Righteousness, excuse me, condemnation to justification, he has the power to reverse even the curse of death and bring life. And bring life. And he does so lawfully. He doesn't just do it whimsically, but he does it by sending his son to taste death for us to pay the punishment that's required so that he can maintain his justice and be a justifier of the one who trusts in Jesus. So, loved ones, fear the Lord. Don't fear death. Don't fear Satan. Don't fear any adversary. You fear the Lord more than anyone else because he is truly the sovereign. He is the one who is in control and he is good to his children. So in what sense does the devil have this power of death, according to the author to the Hebrews? Well, in this sense, I believe, the devil has the power of accusation. Accusation. His name, Diavolo, means one who hurls accusations toward others. That's his name, so that's his function. That's what he does. His name means accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. And what does he do? He accuses sinners of sin by saying this, you have broken God's law and therefore you are deserving of death. There's the power of death that Satan has. Power of accusation. Jesus has taken that away. How? By dying for us and paying our penalty in full. So that now when the devil brings his accusations before the Lord, guess what? We have an advocate in Christ the righteous who advocates for us when we sin and says, I paid for him. I paid for her. All that sin is covered. Your accusation no longer stands. The power of death has been removed from the devil by Jesus' victorious death and life. And so according to this passage, Christ has effectively destroyed the power of the devil in his accusation and effectively destroyed him as well. Scripture teaches that he is like a mortally wounded one. That's why the Scripture says he has great wrath because he knows his time is short. Romans, at the end of Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, Paul says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, soon. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So there it is. Satan is wounded. He is going to be finally destroyed and crushed shortly. And it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that now abounds toward us and gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I think it's in that sense that Satan is bound in Revelation 20. 
Christ is described as the stronger man who comes in and overpowers the strong man armed, who takes away his armor and who sets all the captives free. That was us, brothers and sisters, when we were under the control in the sway of the wicked one in his kingdom. The devil can no longer deceive the nations of the world as he had before because we are no longer in the sway of the wicked one. We are now anchored to the rock of truth, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. You see, God, through Jesus Christ, has opened our eyes to the truth of God's word and to Jesus as the only Savior. And we have overcome our enemy through Christ. Yes, he may wreak havoc upon us like he did upon Job but he can never touch our salvation. Our life is hid with Christ in God. Amen? That's right. And one day, the scripture says, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire to eternal destruction. His doom is sure. It's coming. One little word will fell him. So, firstly, we've been raised spiritually from the dead. Secondly, the devil's power of death is gone. And then just staying with this text in Hebrews for a moment, What's the, the result of Christ's conquering work over the devil? This. Thirdly, our fear of death is removed. Our fear of death is removed. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Jesus came to release us from the fear of death. You and I were in bondage to this, to this fear. I mean, whether people want to admit it or not, death reigns and causes great fear in their hearts, deep in their heart of hearts. They just won't admit it. I mean, that's, that's why people put down deep roots in this world, is it not? Because they don't want to leave it. That's why people spend millions and millions of dollars to avoid the aging process at all costs, is it not? Because they don't want to think about death. They don't want to talk about death. I mean, even when you come to the end of life, what does our society want to do with those who are ready to pass from this world to the next? Put them under some kind of professional care so that they can pass in a way that is acceptable, that is maybe easier for people, that we don't need to see the body die. But the reality is that the body dies, and someone has to deal with that. It's an evidence that God's wrath is poured out upon all sin because we die. And the Lord wants us to know that. Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, uh, she coined the term pass away to avoid talking about death. Same reason, because she has the fear of death. She had the fear of death. What does Jesus say to us, loved ones, for his sheep, his flock? He says this, John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Loved ones, our future is secure. No matter what may happen in this life, the greatest issue of life, which is the eternity of your soul, the safety of your soul has been settled because Jesus willingly let himself be troubled for us. That we need not be troubled any longer. The issue of life, eternal life, is settled. You now have a clear conscience, Hebrews says, so that you can serve the Lord. 
the guilt of your sin has been removed. Obstacles are removed so that now you can live with a clear conscience serving the Lord with gratitude for what he has done for you. The fear of death is gone and you reign in life. Fourthly, and lastly for today, we've been freed from the power of sin. We've been freed from the power of sin. Scripture teaches that Jesus' death set us free from the penalty of sin. That's our justification. The Holy Spirit now comes to indwell us and give us power to say no to sin. We are free from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. One day, we will be glorified and the very presence of sin will be removed from our bodies. Now we have been freed from the power of sin. Listen to Romans 6.14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, shall not reign over you. For you are not under law but under grace. And if sin doesn't reign over you and sin leads to death, then guess what? Death doesn't reign over you either. Paul says as much in Romans 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life, spirit of life, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Death no longer reigns. The spirit of life now reigns in his people's hearts. Jesus' death has set us free. That hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, I love verse 4. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. What does that mean? Christ breaks the power of sin. That power that sin had, that terrible sway that we were in, has been broken forever. You are no longer bound to sin as you were before. Previously, you had no choice but to sin. In fact, everything that comes out of you, according to the Lord, and me, previously, is sin, is vile, because it comes from a heart that is evil. But now in Christ we have been made new. And so what the Lord now sees is a heart that loves him and worships him. And we ask for that. Lord, help us to love you more. So this is all part of the reign of life. Sin has been broken the domination is no longer there. There's a wonderful psalm, Psalm 8, that is referenced in Hebrews chapter 2 here. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have set him over the works of your hands and have put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you know that man was originally created to have dominion over the earth? That was the original mandate. God created man in his image, that he would be an image bearer in the earth and that he would reflect the glory of God in this way, by having dominion. Not harsh, tyrannical dominion, but the kind of tender, loving, careful dominion that God exercises over all his creation. That was man's intent. Man sinned and fell and broke from that intent. And so what happens? The Lord sends his son, the Jesus Christ, who condescended and in the same way became a little lower than the angels. He intentionally weakened himself so that he could taste death for us. And through his victorious rising from the dead, he now reigns and fulfills God's original intention for man. He is the perfect man. You see that? So in Christ, we now have dominion because Christ has dominion. That mandate from creation has been fulfilled in Jesus this sets up so much wonderful scripture as we're coming to in Romans chapter 6 about not living anymore as if we are still slaves to sin. 
because we are now in union with the one who reigns. So, just by way of review, we have been raised from the dead spiritually. The devil's power of death is gone forever. Our fear of death is gone forever. And we've been freed from the power of sin. Scripture says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us now. Now we're more than conquerors. And he loved us not because there's anything particularly lovely about us. The only reason he loved us is because he wanted to. He set his love on us because he delights in mercy and loving kindness. He doesn't retain his wrath forever. He is a savior by nature. And so for those of us who know him as savior, who have received abundance of grace and gladly accepted this gift of Christ's righteousness, let us praise him because he is worthy. Let us worship him and adore him and humble ourselves before him and live for his glory and his honor because he alone is worthy. His grace is greater than all our sin. And for those of you who may not know the Lord this morning, savingly, call upon the name of the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Call upon him while he may be found. Do not harden your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness after seeing the mighty works of God. Humble yourselves as that tax collector did in Luke 18 who beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you will find rest for your souls. His grace is greater than all our sin. Next time, I hope to explore finishing this section about what it means to reign in life in the future sense, in the glory that is yet to be revealed. But for today, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this truth that you reign. You reign over death. You reign over all powers and dominions that you have established sovereignly. And Father, all things are in subjection under you and will be fully in subjection under you when you finally destroy that last enemy, death. Lord, thank you that you have brought us to yourself to a reigning in life where now we are spiritually alive. Our senses are uh, alert and we are aware of our great need. Ever more, in fact, aware of our sinfulness that we might come to Christ and see him as more precious, as more desirable, as more lovely than anything that this world can offer. Father, I pray that your son would be our greatest desire for this congregation, for your people here, for your people in every gospel-preaching church in this valley and in this country and in this world. Father, you are building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. Praise the Lord. Amen.